Well, hey, folks. Welcome. Well, here we are, the Not Necessarily Mad podcast, with me, Eric Collinsworth, and G.B. Meyer. Thanks for joining us. Before G.B. and I get started, I wanted to apologize to our regular listeners. We try our best to publish the Not Necessarily Mad podcast on a weekly basis. You may have noticed that we have not had a new episode in about two weeks. Life has a way of knocking you off your projected path and moving forward whether you want to or or not. And that's the case with me. Without going into too much detail, I needed to take a little time away to take care of a family member's health issues. While the immediacy of the event is taken care of, my family is on an expanded journey in regards to long-term health and wellness, and we can use all the good vibes you can send our way. Now, in this episode, GB and I discuss follow-up albums that changed our perspective on established artists. So let's get right to it. Well, hey, GB. Hey, Eric. How are you? You know what, man? It's it's been a, a it, obviously from our introduction, it's been a bit of a trying time, but we're, we're we're getting through and and glad to be back on on point, I guess, or in the saddle or whatever cliche thing we want to say tonight. Right. Yeah, I've missed talking to you, buddy. Yeah, it's 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 been it's been a rough couple of weeks, not gonna lie, but glad glad that we're back and uh, gonna gonna kind of delve into uh, a topic you and I have talked about before, but just not on the air. Yeah, when we um, when we were talking with Christian, um, who is our artistic cohort in the MadFam World concept that we're building out, MadFamWorld.com, about his concept of Only Child X and where he's taking that in a musical direction, that conversation led into me referencing an album where I said, you know, it reminds me of this. And then I made the comment that that record had absolutely changed my perspective, not only on the band, but even kind of uh, some concepts musically. Right. And you said, you know what? Wait, hold that thought. Don't say any more about it. <laughs> right. I remember that conversation. We're on the front porch at Christian. Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. Yeah. That's, 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 that's fodder for, for our, our podcast right there. And that was, that was uh, several months ago. So, you know what, while it's good to be, uh, good to be back, I've been looking forward to having this conversation for even longer than, uh, than while you then were the, away. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Right on. So why don't, why don't, why don't you go ahead and lead us into this conversation there? Yeah. So I'll begin with an idea that, um, the idea for me as a kid, listening to music on the radio, seeing the records in the record store, that a band could completely reinvent itself, probably became first clear to me that that was even possible when um, the Rolling Stones released Some Girls. Mm. Now, I'm not going to list this as one of these records, but it's where the idea, I think, started that you couldn't always anticipate what you knew about a band. So... And from that that point forward, uh, there were other records that I was expecting, and I, I know that so that puts me around 1980, where I, I became aware that you could never really predict what an artist was going to come out with. Right. Yeah. And I think the very first one that I can recall saying, wow, I did not see this coming, was Let's Dance by David Bowie. Yes. That's a, and it's a great tune. That was um, that was Stevie Ray Vaughan's introduction to the world, uh, the pop world. It was, yeah. He, yeah. As the guitarist on that. Um, 
so I was acquainted with who Bowie was, and by the time uh, that record came out, I was, I think, you know, maybe in ninth grade. Uh, I, was in, it was, I was in high school. Right. And certainly was familiar with how Bowie would change his sound and style and persona and whatever right. else. And, and he, he has a long history of of that and through his through his out his career i mean you went from siggy stardust to the 80s post mod that we that we're dealing with in in that time frame right and and you know another one like that is madonna that just kept reinventing herself over time sure i think what makes let's dance uh stand out to me is that even though bowie had been reinventing himself all through the 70s the fact that he just said you know what i'm going to make a record that's going to be pop accessible and i'm going to get niles and tony from chic and chic excuse me and we're going to make a record that's danceable and that's groovable and it was brilliant in how he made the decision he was going to take that as an approach Right, and and it was a surprise because that whole album was was of that ilk. It was that that really eighties, not really new wave, but not really pop, sort of in between. If that made sense, yeah. And that and and landing in a ready made market that was emerging, which was MTV. So it's just this perfect storm. And and for him especially because he he had always been a visual artist, right? As, as well as a as a sonic artist. As we, you know, one of my favorite videos of him is uh, the um, him and Bing Crosby singing the "Little Drummer Boy." Right. Yeah. So he, where they're both in the Kerrigan the cardigan sweaters, Kerrigan sweaters, <laughs> what? cardigan sweaters, and and chilling like a really bad variety TV show, and it's just absolutely great. He, he certainly had a sense of um, uh, of a film around a song being a concept long before MTV was uh, was really digging in its heels and getting traction. Exactly, exactly. No, that's a that's a great example of that because I mean, you, it was so, such a departure from like even the the mid '70s stuff. Yeah, yeah. With him, right? Yeah. Um, I have others. Yeah. I don't know if you've got any in mind. I I've got a couple. If you just want to go back and forth a couple of times, yeah. Um, one of my it's it's from that. Um, I'll go with this one first because the other one I think you're going to want to jump in a lot on. Okay. Uh, um. It was uh, Joe Jackson. Um, I got turned on to him with the Look Sharp album, you know, and you know, even pre-production, we were we were chatting, testing the lines, and we kind of riffed on is she really going out with him? And that's at that time frame of that really post-punk pop. Mm-hmm. That was it was it was radio-friendly stuff that had an edge to it. And then the the next album was Night and Day. Right, yeah, and it what you know if you were and I was so hooked on what he did on Look Sharp, I thought, oh, this is going to be a great album, more of the same. No, <laughs> it was it was a a lesson in Latin jazz, basically. <laughs> it was all um, Latin flavored jazz, except for the one pop song uh, that was on there, um, Stepping, Stepping Out. Stepping Out, yeah, yeah, which was the earworm of that year. I think it was what 1981 yeah, 82, yeah right there. around yeah. there yeah 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 yeah. but the album was so different from where he was before and even at a young age i realized oh that's that's not usual 
but not uh, not highly unlikely. But it, it it was unusual to see that in like back to back albums. Usually, you heard the 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 change over time. But this was such an about I don't want to say an about face, but a, a pure left turn from where he was. That it and I think that's where I garnered a greater appreciation for him as a musician. Um, doing that and then the next album that i caught from him was jump and jive where he did 1940s and 50s jazz tunes with a little big band in england and it's it's all cover tunes of of that great music and he killed it on that one so yet again he you know well let's just 90 degrees from where we were and let's go over here for a while and you were looking forward to those when they were coming out you were anticipating them yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, all right, where where do we go from here? And my introduction, I get, I, I'm, I'm a little bit jealous. My introduction to him was that song "Stepping Out" on MTV. That's how I became acquainted with him. Period. Yeah. Oh, dude, you need to listen to the like late '70s stuff because it. it well, it, yeah, I I have. Well, you, but, you have now. Yeah. And, well, the, at least the hits, but the the whole album, you know, the whole set of of tunes is really good. Even the ones that didn't get a lot of radio play. But he was in that 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 cusp of that proto-punk new new wave kind of sound like blondie had and yeah or the early cars or or, you know it was rock driven riff driven punk pop punk i guess but yeah i mean and and then then you get stepping out around the time that that was happening um there was a band that emerged a little bit on MTV and college radio, and I think by the mid-80s was becoming a phenomena, and the late 80s definitely won. And then they put out a record in 1992, which completely redefined the expectation of what they were about or what their sound was. Do you know who this is? I'm, I'm going to say it was the next group on my list. It was R.E.M. Oh, so that's not who I was thinking of, but we're going to come back to that one. How about that? Because I want to talk about REM too. Oh, that's interesting. Right, because I'm, I'm, as you're saying that, I'm like, all right. All right. All right. Wait, so wait, let's, let's, and, hold and, off on, uh, that, let's hold off on, on my big windup. Why don't you tell me what you have to say about REM? Well, I mean, I kind of I got into them in that like early 80s, 82, 83, mm-hmm. uh, Murmur and Reckoning. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, these guys, they get it. You know, they spoke to the young, white, teenage angst that I was feeling at that point. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Fables of Reconstruction and Life's Rich Pageant came out. And there was a maturity in that sound. And this is even before, like, the really big, like, Uber hits. And then all of a sudden they're doing shiny, happy people. You know, there was that, that sweet spot where they they were out of that youthful, ragey, edgy lyrically but pop sensibility music wise and really had mature they matured as i matured basically with their music and and those two follow-up albums really just kind of i mean Re- reckoning was great but the life's rich pageant I don't, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it it's i just, need you to, i need you to pause and explain to me how it is that you have gotten into my brain or how you've looked at my paper <laughs> from miles away <laughs> Well, I, I kind of figured that when we were when we were looking at all this and talking through it, I'm like, that's going to be one we're going to share a lot of. But I, I think that for 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 those of us that were were even remotely into REM at that time, we kind of all like hit that point at the same time and went, oh wow, that's that's 
that's like exactly how I'm thinking in a, in a more, not like we were ultimately mature at that point, right. but a more mature, less, um, less naive, I think would be a good way to put it. Yeah. So, um, it, what's really, what's, what's astonishing about this is first of all, uh, you're landing exactly in the spot that I wanted to talk about them. And, and it's hard to explain, but you're doing a really good job with it, which is, it's hard to explain that REM before their, um, slow transformation in the nineties into something very different. And after, you know, Bill Berry, their drummer left the band and how they just Mm -hmm. continue to really just sort of, I don't know, become something very different than what they were after maybe, um, automatic for the people. Yeah. I would say that that, that was like I'm not going to say jumping the shark because that is such an overused cliche, but that was like the last really good REM album. I, wow, yeah. So we we see eye to eye on that. That was okay. That was where I. I that's where I got off the train. Uh, yeah, but I, 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 I was glad I wasn't going to offend you and go. But the last <laughs> album was just stunning. So you know what? I thought that you were. Uh, here's here's the crazy part. I I wrote down some. Um, I wrote down some. Um, some notes but i'm like yeah he's he's not going to see where i'm coming from on this one and here you come at me with it so my 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 memory of it is fairly precise which is um i was looking forward to when fables of the reconstruction came out and i bought it at the record store and a lot of people who i knew uh, i think i was a senior in high school a lot of people who i knew didn't like it and i was immediately captivated i thought it was it was gloomy and weird and spooky and conceptual. It was like Faulkner to music. And oh, wow, that's yes, 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 yes. And so, you know, it was really ambitious of them to go to London. And, you know, I think it was London, but they were definitely in England. And they recorded this record that was, you know, very much a, a more of a concept piece than their. It, it was almost gothic in its appeal without being gothic in its approach. In a southern folk quality, sure. You know? Yeah. Uh, so. What I had written down was Life's Bridge Pageant because that came out right before I went away to uh, to college. And then R.E.M. was everywhere. It was on. And it was a a record produced with the intent of really breaking through and becoming mm-hmm. better known. And I forget the name of the producer. He had done a lot of work with John Mellencamp. And um, it's an extremely tight rock album. And if you listen to it, it's astonishing that it's it's a protest album. And right. it's it holds water today, even still. I mean, I'm, um, I'm, I'm. So- there, there, yes, and th- there are some dated sounds. I mean, you can not dated as in listen to that crap, but like dated as in oh, that's a very 1990s, early 2000s sound. Yeah, right. There, there are things in it that they wouldn't do the way that they did uh, then. But that is also because a lot of what was on there was, um, you know, borrowed from because it was so successful. Right. Um, but yeah, wow, I can't believe that you picked that one. And that was not the <laughs> ramp that I was building to this other point of conversation. Oh, my God. So, well, let's let's go ahead and ex- explore that ramp if you want to go ahead with your next one. Okay, so around the time that you probably first heard of R.E.M., you heard of this other band, but they're not from America. And they were also pretty distinct, and they were also doing something pretty amazing with four guys. And they put out a record in 1992, which... Um, which was very different from what they had been doing before. And that's U2, and the record is Octung Baby. Yes. Um, I was looking forward to getting that record, although, truth be, be told, I was not a super fan of Joshua Tree. I liked it okay. It was- and I was not a fan, really, uh, at all of Rattle and Hum. 
I, you know, I, I uh, which came yeah. right before it. Yeah, yeah. I, I did like Joshua Tree. It wasn't like I wouldn't hold it up as like their Mona Lisa or whatever. But it was, it was a good album. But Achung Baby, oh, right. So yeah. for for anyone who hasn't heard the record. Um, you know what they came out with, particularly with the uh, the almost like craftwork, like industrial noises that they open with, and um, so much so much industrial edge. It's very different from a lot of the you know soulful, captivating you know um, guitar informed by Celtic eth- uh, ethereal qualities and whatever else that they had been playing right. with for a decade. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. So, and and I think that that one really um, it it kind of set a tone in the early '90s uh, outside of grunge, of you know if if uh, artists from the '80s are going to survive in the '90s, they're going to have to be really inventive and do something different. And I think that you two did that. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you 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 had in that whole time frame though, you had a bunch of artists that were either like pop stars in the 70s that were making their transition to 80s pop mm-hmm. the, the one that comes to mind is michael jackson i mean you go from the jackson five to um what was it off the wall was that the album name yeah was, off the wall yeah well right and then all of a sudden you get into the mtv michael jackson era and then he just he just kept reinventing himself about every decade, decade and a half. There would he would just come out with these monster hits and just reinvent himself all the time. And that's that's not an easy thing. And you know the ones I think we're talking about kind of they put themselves in in a in a strata of of superstardom because not only are we paying attention to their releases they're they're changing in such a way to make us stop and really think about it yeah and i there also seems to me in what you're saying that is making me think that a lot of what we're talking about is as a new decade emerges you know somewhere between turning over from the the zero to the two from 80 to 82 or from the 90 to 92. well and and the and the funny thing is you know i've 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 done classes where i've had to write papers on pop music or or whatever when i was when i was working on my music degree mm-hmm. a couple of years ago and one of the things i did was like this uh, historic reference of of the eras of pop music, mm-hmm. rock music, whatever you want to say it, and it and it it has become very decade driven. It's like we we categorize our songs. Yeah, there are crossovers like like we were talking about Bowie and Blondie from the like late late seventies seventy eight seventy nine into the eighties where we have that that totally new wave sound, or even you know grunge coming in when it did. It seems to always line up with decades. You know, the 60s are very much the 60s. There was some crossover to about 72, and then everything changes. And then we're, we're defining it by those those time zones again, you know, like decades and stuff like that. And I think that's part of just human nature. It's like we see growth and change, and those are those are bell, bellwether moments of change. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, this new decade, let's, let's go like this. I don't think I don't think they go out purposely and say I'm going to change the whole sound of what we're doing. I think they're influenced by what's going on around them, and I think that the change is just we have to categorize it some way. Yeah, we, yeah. We have to put it in a list somehow. I think you know, that's we've been doing it with music forever. So I mean, 
I think that's really interesting, and, and uh, I hadn't considered it that way, but now that you mention it with that as a, as a mental um, framework, I think that that's why you see some of these landing in the, the second year of the decade. So I brought up David Bowie's Let's Dance in 82 and Octung Baby in 92. I'm going to bring one up from 2002. Oh, ooh, okay. And that is, you ready? Yep. Wilco. And that's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Oh, dude, excellent choice. And, you know, as big... That, that's, yeah. that's, the album, that's the album that made me a Wilco fan. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can appreciate that. So, you know, uh, from uh, everything from AM all the way to working with Billy Bragg and doing uh, or Summer Teeth and then working on uh, Mermaid Avenue with Billy Bragg, um, they really, you know, had this Americana post-punk or, uh, yeah, post-punk Americana uh, vibe going, uh, right. straightforward rock, and it was enjoyable, and I liked them a lot. And they can write a hook, too. Yeah. Oh, oh my God, they can write a hook. Yeah, yeah, they can. <laughs> but um, from start to finish, I mean, um, that, that, uh, that record defined a year for me. Yes. And, um, and, and I can't even explain to you, you know, if you haven't heard it, how it's so different or, or why that is. And I certainly didn't see it coming. No. And, well, I think, again, it was, it was much like we talked about earlier with, um, with REM. There was a maturing of the, of the product. It wasn't just they got better as songwriters. They got better as musicians and studio technicians. Mm-hmm. You know, they were able to... Um, they increased their vocabulary in such a way that they could they could grasp the higher ideas of what they're trying to get across and get them across. Whereas before, it came across as just very high energy. And it seemed it seemed with that with that with that album, it became more of a. All right, now that we have your attention, let's have this in depth conversation that's nuanced. Still got that energy, but it's it's. Uh, again, I can only come up with a more mature sound. I think that they knew that they were maturing as well, and that is why you have this whole story around that that record. It's a great example. I think that they were maturing, and I think that's often true when this happens. But they um, they recorded this, and there was a some student documentary um, filmmakers. Uh, shooting a movie about the whole creation of the record, including their record company saying, we don't know what this is, but we don't want it, and firing them. And they bought back the masters and then uh, took it through a different avenue and released it. And that film is called I'm Trying to Break Your Heart, which is, of course, the name of the uh, the first song on that record. Um, and it's, you know, uh, a lot of drama in that, in that film, but it's history being recorded of a band that's got a sense of what it wants to do and challenging its, its longstanding, uh, commercial partnership with its label. Right. And, and that, that takes, that takes a set. I'm not going to lie because when money's coming in and money's easy, I'm not saying that the money's easy, but when it's readily coming in like that, it's hard to go against principle. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm perhaps like spellbound by the fact that they did that. It's not just that I love the record, which I do, or that it's such a change, which, which it is. Um, but, but the statement that it made. And, and the fact that, you know, it's like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like, um, I mean, it's like it's like the 
It's like the thin outline of a Disney movie. And fortunately, <laughs> there were you know there were there were student filmmakers there to record the whole thing, and then that was made into a movie. And now we all know. I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It makes it makes total sense. All right, I've got one for you. Sock it to me. Okay, so. Um, Coming out of that 80s tradition again, I was a huge police fan. Mm. I think everybody was. I, I, I've not met anybody that goes, you know what, the police, yeah, I could take it. <laughs> everybody, in, there's at least one song that everybody can sing along to. Usually it's Roxanne, and they're screaming in the high falsetto and really badly, but, you know, everybody loves that tune. When I heard Sting's solo album, Dream of the Blue Turtles, mm. mm-hmm. it was, well, I mean, he had like the musicians were the best jazz musicians at the time bar none Mm -hmm. and he 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 made a pop jazz album Mm -hmm. which was so different than everything that he had been doing with the police it 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 stopped me in my tracks i had forgotten about this and i'm glad you brought it up because i remember you know that's also a different time so there's no internet buzz around hey guess what you know you're Here's a bit of a sample of what's coming, and it's much different than what you've heard in The Police. But when that record came out, Sting's background in jazz and being a very literate person and being a songwriter outside of, you know, Stuart Copeland. Don't stand so close to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, you know, um, you know, Stuart Copeland uh, as a drummer always kind of leading on the, leaning a little bit hard on the beat and Sting trying to pull him back. I mean, that, that yeah. tension of, of propulsion. Uh, well, that that's what made the police so great was that tension, I think. Yeah, and but that's not what Dream of the Blue Turtles is at all. Oh no! And when it came Ooh. out, I was like, "What? Do wait, wait, what?" Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then you had to listen to it again and go, "I get it." Which I did. I yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Immediately, it's like listen to it and then put it right back in the CD player and listen to it again. Uh, so since you since you brought that one up, I didn't write this down, but I'll give it maybe a bit of a follow on, and it's not quite as. It's not quite as surprising because this was such a shift. But I will also say in the early 90s when he released Ten Sumner's Tales. Yes. um, Which is just a master of songwriting and, you know, it's just a great record. I didn't think that he could ever top the the surprise and the real enjoyment I had gotten from Dream of the Blue Turtles. And yet he, he really did surprise me. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that's why certain artists, again, we keep referencing, you know, time changing over time. I mean, Paul McCartney Mm. has been a Beatle. He's been in Wings, and now he just does his own thing. But if you think about it, he reinvented himself three or four times over his career. And where they were all familiar and you could all say, yeah, that's sort of Beatlesque and that sounds like this and sounds like it, but he kept, he kept generating pop tunes that appealed to the masses, whether it was because it was just Paul McCartney doing it or because they were really good tunes. And I really think it's the latter, not the former. I mean, they are really clever to most of his stuff was very, very clever. Um, you know, he, he, he reinvented himself three or four times. Um, the Rolling Stones have done that more than once. I mean, we referenced them earlier, but you know, they went from being the Beatles' shadow to you know the band of the eighties. Mm-hmm. You know, they could do no wrong, and they still keep coming out. You know, until recently with new stuff that was that was not 
not half bad. I mean, it was it was it, it's not rock and roll hall of fame quality tunes, but it was still it was it was good enough to get radio play. It's it's the rare, um, and we've already mentioned a couple, uh, but it is the rare artist that can that can show up and really surprise you with a wait I didn't see this coming phenomena more than once, you know, right. And then you, then you, then you don't question it anymore. You're not like blown away by it. You're just like, oh, that's really cool. They've gone in right, yet another right. direction. Like, oh, they did it again. But it's yeah. right. Um, I do know that. Um, I do know that. Even the, I'm going to name another artist, uh, kind of in the same vein um, as uh, Sting, in the sense that everything that came before was not what I heard on a particular record. Um, and the record that I'm thinking of is called Morning Phase, and the artist is Beck. And it came out, I think, around 2014. Right. And it won Record of the Year. It won the Grammy. And I am used to... uh, First of all, I'm used to Beck being very inventive and very avant-garde and really kind of reinventing himself uh, every... You know, every record. Even the difference between his early stuff, like uh, uh, those first two records... um, um, uh, forget the name of the first one, and uh, something like uh, something gold and um, and Odelay. but this record is uh, it's soft, it's melodic, it's reflective, it's um, uh, contemplative. I don't even know really how to describe it. And you know, um, and he carries it. He really delivers. And you're you know, I'm like, wow, this is you know, this is. This is back, Mr. Two Turntables and a Microphone, or it's always got like something kind of tongue-in-cheek or a little bit, you know, a little bit, hey, it's a gas, man, you know? I mean... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think he went out on purpose to do that. I mean, I think that's sort of been his mo from the beginning it's like i'm i'm an always evolving artist whereas i don't necessarily think that the artist of your that we've been talking about really went at it in such a way as to saying okay i'm going to do it this way for this time period and then my next album is going to be this and it, it seemed more organic where with with him it just seems like yeah, I did that already. I'm not going to do it again. I want to do something different. And that was his mindset from the beginning with each of his projects. Right. So I think that, to your point, I think that he is a natural inventor and reinventor, much like Bowie. Um, and then much like the Stones that, that, had to become. A, that is a great analysis or, or, or juxtaposition right there, Beck, Beck and Bowie. I, I think that, that that is the strongest parallel I've heard in a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, well, thank you. Uh, you know, I think that um, I think that even as Beck's reinventions go, that one in particular is uh, is is notable. That that's the one that um, is you know has such uh, quiet elegance to it, and it's not really like some of his, you know his other uh, fun or jazz or dance or absurdity or whatever else that he's brought. Right, right. Although Indeed. you know what. Um, I don't know whether or not this lands, but I'll tell you, it did surprise me. So, what's okay. uh, one more so that surprised me is actually Bowie again, and that was his last record, Black Star. I think I, I'm with you on that, and it, I think for me, it showed it showed a David Bowie without a mask. That was probably the truest vision, orally, mm-hmm. sound wise, that we have of of who David Bowie was. 
Yeah, so I went to the uh, I, I, um, I went I made sure I forget where I went to get to get uh, a copy of it or downloaded it. I just made sure that I had it as soon as it came out. I believe I downloaded it. I didn't have to go out and buy it. It wasn't the old days. This was 2016. <laughs> and right. um, and I spent a weekend with it and I was a little confused because you know his picture was not on the the jacket uh his picture his face has always been on his records right and it was just this very plain black star and and then you listen to i think your i think what you said is is perfect uh i do feel like he was being completely persona or mask free and right because everything else that he's ever done he's he's even quantified it himself saying yeah that ziggy stardust was a character the the David Bowie that everybody saw from the eighties was my pop persona. Yeah, and you know? yeah, and, and so and you, you never you never saw the, the you never saw the true Davy Jones, you know. And you always saw some version right. of David Bowie, and then and then on this last album, he just said, "No, everything's down. This is this is me." So he shows up without concoction and without his face on the record, and. Um, you you know, I have no proof of this. I'll just have to tell you that I told a very, a very good friend who, um, who also likes Bowie. I was like, Hey, did you hear that? I listened to it all weekend. I'm like, is this his last record? I feel like he's telling us goodbye. And yes, it was. And it was. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's not that I am some kind of psychic or that I am very, you know, uh, just majestically insightful. It's that I picked up something from what he was conveying there, and the and the and the um, unconcocted self that he was presenting uh, musically, and right. um, and you know uh, anyway. So yes, even a inventor and reinventor uh, like like Bowie can surprise us in the end, even with this last uh, even with this last record. as we wrap up this episode, we want to thank those that have chosen to listen. Let your friends know that they can find the Not Necessarily Mad podcast in most places that you find your favorite podcast, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Pandora, and many others, as well as our home at madfamworld.com. You can find a complete list of our podcast outlets, links to things we discuss, photos and extra podcast content on our Facebook page. Search for the Not Necessarily Mad podcast there. Stop by and give us a like. Stay safe.